<laughs> awesome. Uh, all right, let's get started. Welcome back to the Key in the Lake podcast, the premier whiskey podcast, now with the mention of whiskey in its title. Hi, this is Jake coming live from Chicago, Illinois, with a very special podcast that I think we spoke into existence. We have two <laughs> so. guests this afternoon, no other hosts, so no Scottish guy and no uh, Puerto Rican guy, but... You know what? I'm half Italian and tan, so I make up for the both of them. I can fake a Scottish accent if one needed to. But uh, Chris Blantner, welcome back to the podcast, also known as Urban Bourbonist in front of the podcast. Thank you very much, as always, for having me back. Yeah, absolutely. And you brought a friend with you this time. Yes. Somebody that's highly been highly anticipated on this podcast. The whiskey has, His whiskey has been drank many of the times. The brand's been spoken about uh, almost, I'd say, on every single podcast since you introduced it to us back in August of 2019, I think, was the first time you brought it on the podcast. Yeah, I think so. There's a few bottles back there, but uh, enough suspense. Sean Josephs, founder of Pinhook. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Great to be here. And I I didn't realize it was every single episode, but that's pretty good, I guess. (laughs) We're contractually (laughs) obligated, I guess, to say it. That's what we always joke about, getting remark, and we pour quite a bit of it. Um, I would say we've had, I don't know, maybe... 10 different SKUs, maybe? I would think at least, like, pretty much any time a new one comes out, if yeah. if, uh, we're, if I'm on the podcast, I think that's pretty much with me almost every time. What was uh, Wilson's infamous quote? Which one was that on? Uh, that was on the uh, Rye Humor, Cask Strength right. Rye yeah. Humor. That's uh, one of my all-time favorites. Yeah. Heck yeah. He, he called making. that a love-making making <laughs> A beautiful love-making rye. Um, then I think I gave Calm a drink of that the next week, and we have this, like, minute video of him just waxing poetically about it in his backyard and this was may of 2020 we were having like our first person interaction outside like at a barbecue and he's like i don't even like american whiskey he's scottish so but he was totally in love with it and just kept talking on and on about it made some whiskey sours with it that night too so i think we might have killed the bottle to be honest with you yeah that was i remember blending that at um at castle and key okay and i remember because it is the nature of blending. I mean, I'm not like, I taste a lot of other stuff. Mm-hmm. I'm not delusional about every single pin hook. <laughs> and I'm not like, every, it's all the, like, I mean, I mean, we were talking a little bit before just about the nature of like, I have experience on the other side. Right. And there's something embarrassing when you meet suppliers who are convinced that they have the best thing that's ever been made. And it's just like, it's very awkward. Yeah. You know, when they're like, have you ever tasted anything like this? And I'm like, yeah, I definitely have a lot. <laughs> Once or And twice. a lot of things that are better. Yeah. So I'm very careful. Well, one, not to, well, to not be that person, but certainly not to represent myself as that person. But I remember blending that and I was like, oh, wow. Because there is, you know, there's an aspect of the way we approach blending there. There's a... I think of it more like discovery Mm -hmm. because there's no preconceived notion of what it's supposed to be. So you're sitting there and you're playing around with all of these possible combinations um, and you're just trying to find something great. Um, Yeah. And so sometimes it's just the way that it all comes together. That was one of those ones where I was like, Oh wow. Is this like, this really came out amazing. (laughs) Like this is crazy good. Um, And uh, yeah. So I, I just remember that really well. Was there, is there a plan of attack when you go into blending a rye or blending any whiskey? There's really not. I mean, I think that, um, I mean, certainly with the stuff I've blended a lot, like the vertical series, mm-hmm. I've been, t- I've tasted so much MGP, like our, the mash bill that we have of both bourbon and rye over the years. I mean, I would want to say like thousands yeah. of samples, single barrel samples, <laughs> blends. Um, and so there's a part of me that is, um, 
I guess still though, I'm just curious yeah. because like when we blend the vertical, I generally wouldn't have tasted any samples since okay. the prior year. So like now I'm just starting to taste actually next week, I'll be blending the six year bourbon. Um, but some of the single barrel samples are starting to go out. So I've tasted some of those. So in my head, I'm just sort of clocking like, well, how much has there been a leap yeah. from five to six? <laughs> like what's going on with it? Um, but even then, it still, I don't think gives you, it doesn't give you that much to go on. Because you're still just at the end of the day, when the once you start the blending, mm-hmm. you're just looking for the magic. <laughs> like you're just looking yeah. for that combo. Right. And I still think, I don't know... I mean, I try to explain it to a lot, a lot, but I don't know if people understand that the majority of brands, especially big brands, and I think even small brands, blend in a tank, right? Yep. We pre-blend, so we're blending from single barrel samples. Right. Um, and usually when we're in those scenarios, we've organized the samples into equal parts of 10 single barrels. So if you have 180 single barrel samples, obviously that's pretty unwieldy right. you're doing a 150 barrel blend you've got to bring it down to 18 what we call blocks yep. so now you have 18 blocks of 10 you need 15 of them but even 15 if you need 15 and you have 18 that gives you almost 300 possible combinations yeah right so it's a lot yeah um we would never even come close to that like i'd say eight would really be on the high side okay because by the time i get to the blending i've tasted all 18 <laughs> And that gives me a pretty good sense of just like, well, where is it at? How good is it? And then to me, the fun part is like, I've taken all my notes. And so I have an idea of like, option one, Mm -hmm. let's try these 15. Right. And then if I tasted that and right away, you're like, oh, that's pretty phenomenal. Then of course, I'm going to be like, can we beat it? And you keep going forward. Yeah. Or sometimes what happens, you taste the first one and you thought that would be one that works and you're kind of like, eh, <laughs> you know. And honestly, like, I'm not saying that I achieve it in someone else's perception, but relative to what the blend is, I'm going to keep going until I'm like, oh, that's really good. It's a first to, thought. To like, me. Yeah, exactly. It's the first no, thought. No, it has to hit you right. in the, like, it kind of has to hit you in the gut. The other thing that I think most people don't understand about how blending is done, like the big guys, is A, they're blending in tank. All the tasting they do is done at 20%. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. And it's purely to assess consistency of maturation, right? And to assess, like they're tasting whiskey off the still. Yep. Make sure. It's like, is it clean? Is that the way it's <laughs> supposed to taste? Are there any off aromas? When you're tasting at 20%, you're not tasting like, hey, is this good? <laughs> You're just looking for flaws. Yeah. You're looking for flaws and you're looking for consistency of like in warehouse J on the fourth floor, blah, 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 blah. Are these ones doing what they're supposed to be doing? There's no joy in that. Hmm. Right. I do everything at cast strength. Right. I do all the blending at cast strength. I'm tasting everything at cast strength because in my mind, I'm approaching it like a consumer Mm -hmm. because I'm not trying. There is no target end result. So you're just looking to blend a phenomenally delicious whiskey, yeah. which you can't figure out at 20%. Right. Yeah. So you're just going. So even if I'll like, even if it's something like our flagship product, which will generally hit a proof between 95 and hundred, mm-hmm. I still do all the blending at, at cast strength cast. and then pick the blend at cast strength. 
Then I'll winnow it down to the, op- the two options I think are the best and then taste both of them at multiple proofs because sometimes the one you like better at cast strength isn't the one that tastes the best at 97 proof or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, How are you proofing down from those? So we're just doing it like, you know, we're doing it, you know, live where we have a, a refractometer and we're, you know, proofing the blend okay. at cast strength and then just, you know, using one of those pipettes that have the, you know, settings on them basically. So yeah. I'm like, all right, well, if I have one ounce and it's 119 proof and I want to taste it at 95, 96, 97, 98, 90, and 100, then I need to add this much water to one ounce to hit that. Yeah. Um, but it's just a very, and I'm always careful to say this because I think it's true. I'm not saying it's better. You can obviously produce really tasty whiskey in a variety of ways. Um, but the way we're tackling it is much more like you're just sitting there and you're like, all right, we need to make a really delicious whiskey. I have no idea what it's supposed to taste like. Let's see what happens. Right. And just wait till you get like, cause that's the one thing, right? I think it was true from my days in wine. When something hits you as great, like we all know what that is. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Can't almost, you can't, almost can't even explain it. You just know this is good. Yes. Yeah. You could try to break it down and say like, you understand what it is for something to be aromatically complex, complex on the palate, have balance, length of finish, yep. coat your palate, front, middle, back, long finish. Like we all know what that is, but there's something kind of intangible too about something great. Yeah. And so that's what makes it fun for me is that every time you sit, you're just like looking to have that feeling when you blend, not say, oh, it's time to you know, hit the marks. <laughs> yeah. Have, have you ever had <clears throat> when you're doing a blend and like, say you do that first one and you're like, Oh man, that's amazing. And then you say, you keep pushing. Can we beat this? Yeah. Have you ever done like a couple more and just been like, we're not, we're not going to beat it. Like yeah. threes, hundred percent. Three's telling me yeah. right now that. Absolutely. Yeah. Cause I think that's the other thing is, you know, I don't find Back when I was like playing sports growing up, I had a coach who said paralysis by analysis. <laughs> like I think it's true. It's it is, not yeah. helpful to overthink it because in the same way, when you th- when the thing is there and you know what it is and it hits you, like oh this is special. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no point. I find that like if anything, you're just gonna muddy the waters. Yeah. Right. If you just keep going and then you're like, oh I don't know. Now that I think about, oh, let me go back to those two. Like, I think you can make it worse. Yep. So because I'm just looking, because there's no specific goal other than being like hit with the idea that like, mm-hmm. oh, that's great. Once I have that, I'm not going to waste too much time. Yeah. It's like over editing a photo. And then all of a sudden yeah. that person's face is just completely smoothed out. They don't have any wrinkles <laughs> or any substance to them right. whatsoever. You can't even tell a story of somebody's face by looking at them at all. It's just overproduced and you know, something that's happening a lot in our society, I yeah. guess. Yes. Not just not just in photographs, but also in whiskey too. Where it's I think flavors are being taken away sometimes when it comes to without the lack of touch to it. Yeah. And I, I mean I think that that and again, it's not me trying to say it's better, but I think that I like approaching it that way because I think that when people are hit by something, yeah, that's what you're looking for. So I think it's better to approach it that way yeah. as the one putting it together. Absolutely. You know? you know, it's like agree. that's just the mindset that you're in is like, let me just wait. And I honestly, the only thing I've, I think where I've come, cl- where you keep pushing though is like, 
you've done six or seven and you're kind of like, <laughs> you just have to catch yourself because you can definitely get to something that's good. Uh-huh. But if you feel that little, you know, you just feel that little sort of pang of like, eh, it's good. Yeah, but right. not. But you're not like, oh, I'm really. You just. You know, that's the thing. It's hard to put your finger on, but like, right. that's what I'm really relying on is trusting and believing myself that I'm not just saying like, all right, enough already. It's time to like be done for the day and yeah. just say that we got it. Is to just be like, no, let's. You know, I'm. This is good, but I don't have that. I don't have that feeling. Right. Um. So just keep pushing. Yeah, no, I think it's, it seems like your notes are a starting point, maybe like a key for you, but not necessarily going to use that to go in any certain direction. Yeah. And I think that like, again, I probably talk about it ad nauseum, but being inspired by wine, yeah. the whole idea of wine is really that you're trying to not get in the way. Mm. Right. I mean, like all the winemakers, it's a cliche, but they'll say good wine is made in the vineyard. Right. Right. It's all about having great fruit. And then once you have the great fruit, and obviously you're supposed to know what you're doing when it comes to like fermentation and all that good stuff. <laughs> it helps. It helps. Um, but that at the end of the day, like assuming you know how to make wine, you're just, you're not trying to manipulate it or mm-hmm. shape it. You're just trying to represent what that fruit wants to be and what came together in the vineyard. Mm-hmm. And even though the analogy is not perfect, because obviously distillate is so much different. I still think of it in the same way. It's like you have your crop, okay. your harvest of barrels, and they're not the same barrels you blended last time, even if they're the same age and they were aged in the same rickhouse and all that because of all the variability we know with humidity and barometric pressure and the weather that year and one barrel made from one tree and all that stuff. And so you're starting over. And But the goal somewhere in there is to say somewhere in here is a beautiful delicious whiskey that will like hit you as something special. Um, but you don't know what it is, but it will tell you what it wants to be. If you just like hang around. Right. And Um, is that the barrel? You know, if you said wine's made in the vineyard, is whiskey more made in the barrel? Because it's the biggest influence of flavors. I think it has to be. I mean, I think that for anyone who's done single barrel picks and you know that like four barrels filled on the same day, aged in the same part of the rickhouse can taste so different. You have to say, not only does, I mean, I've always heard people say, you know, 80% of the flavor comes from the barrel. Yeah. Um, but even that aside, just the idea that, um, you know, no two trees are the same. <laughs> yeah. The grain, the pores, like, cause clearly, I mean, you can also just have like one barrel that's terrible. Yeah. Usually for being more volatile or harsh, or it's something about the way that the wood comes off is like more green or more raw. Um, that's clearly the barrel. Mm-hmm. It's not the juice because they all have the same distillate in them. Yeah. Um, and then it's just about. But then, of course, maybe that off barrel in combination with others is actually going to add something to the blend. Yeah. And that's yeah. what's cool when you blend small, right? At a really small scale, you know. Like the most number of barrels we blend together is 150. Okay, one and then we yeah. do a lot of stuff in like the 50, 75 range. You know, like maybe it's too much to say every barrel matters, but certainly going back to those 10 barrel blocks, mm-hmm. if you're doing a 100 barrel blend and you have 10 barrel blocks, then every block is 10%. Yeah. And so it's going to, you Make can, and, and that's what I see a lot that's really interesting. You can just flip out one, <laughs> yeah. you can flip out one block. 
and it will change dramatically. Do you set all sensory taste and neurosensory use then for to figure out which barrels you're going to use for which blocks? And then no, I th- that is really done at random. Okay, because the thing I I sat back, I'm not a math person at all, but it maybe almost helped me. I thought about the fact that the blocks you don't know which blocks are going to go together. And then you think about the randomness of how many possible combinations there are. Yeah, yeah. That's that's to, to focus on intentionally building the block. Yeah, I don't see the point because it's there's too much very there are too many possibilities. So the way I think about it is like at least I can taste each block mm. and understand the flavor profile of yeah. that block. And then to be totally honest, though, there's no way you can predict how those blocks are going to interact with each other because there's so many layers of aromatics and flavor and structure that you can't even taste. And then there's no way I I don't care who's, I mean, (laughs) this to me is where I'm just always like, where you have to trust yourself. Someone could sit there and try to tell me like, well, I knew that of this block, which was predominantly this thing and that one, that that when I put them all together, it would be this. Mm -hmm. I'd say that's impossible because you can't smell and taste everything. And then when they interact with each other, yeah. they're not going to behave in no. any way that you can predict or understand. So then I just find my notes are more, um, they're just helpful to have a rationale. Right. So I might start by saying, all right, well, we've got 18 blocks. We're going to blend 15 of them. Let's start by removing the three that we clocked as having the most volatility. Hmm. It's just a starting place. Yeah. Let's see what happens. And then it's not very good, you know, and you're like, okay, well, that's one option. I've got 300 to go. Um, Let's try putting two of those back in and let's pull one that we had a a note that it had the most, that it was the woodiest right? and see what happens there. I think honestly, you could probably do it at complete random. It's just the notes are helpful in having like some some idea of what's going on yeah just anything to even have a reason for why (laughs) yeah exactly pull one but i have to say like there have been ones like i'm trying to think of the blend i did most recently where i think it was our so our first high proof rye with castle and key distillate will come out this fall and Mm -hmm. i was blending that in kentucky there were the two of the blocks that were really the hottest and you just couldn't make a good blend without them in it Oh, without them in it, huh? You needed them, yeah. You and needed I those and ones. I would just be the first one to admit that I don't know why. <laughs> like it doesn't necessarily make any sense. Yeah. So right. that's like, and I think to me, like obvious ethyl alcohol on the nose or the palate is the least pleasing thing. And so it's the easiest thing to think about. Like, all right, well, I've got two blocks that seem to be showing a lot of that. Like, let's get them out of here. Mm-hmm. But then it doesn't always work out. Yeah. Um, and so in the end. I guess if someone was being um, not critical, but if someone's like, wait, so basically you're just like randomly, I'm like, well, it's not totally random. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> like maybe you're just randomly like, well, let's take out these two and put in these two. Let's, all right, well, let's, that's better. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, it's at least helpful to look at the notes and say, like, well, between block F and block J, yeah. is there an argument for, well, you had block J had a longer finish. Well, all right, well, let's leave it in then and yeah. take out F and right. swap something else back in. But I think at the end of the day, it's just a way of organizing um, as you just keep taking a whack at it until, like I said, you get hit and you're like, oh, yeah, I'm really, really happy with right. that. And it's great to have freedom when you're building it, but it's also great to have constraints too. 
So you're not going yeah. too out far outside of the box, not thinking, as well, you mentioned earlier, don't not thinking about it too much. I mean, think about the what I was saying too. Besides the log, how logistically impossible it would be, <laughs> imagine if you were literally trying to build one 150 yeah. barrel blend at a time from individual like, and now I'm going to take five milliliters yeah. from these 150 barrels. No. Right. It's like, and then what, how many would you swap out to say like, and then what if those 150 and you're like, Oh, well that's not good. Yeah. You would have no way of even gauging like, well, I've got 30 other ones. Should I just randomly remove this 30? Right. Is that how you, you know? built the vertical series then? But like not being overwhelmed with too many barrels and too many options. Yeah, I mean, I don't think, and I don't think there's any advantage because if you're going to, like I said, if you're going to blend 150 barrels, I think winnowing it down to 18, 10 barrel blocks, yeah. it's the only way to manage it. And it's the only way to make, to take big swings at it and say yeah. like, well, I can make, I can start with these 15 and then I can look at the three that I removed and depending on what I'm tasting, I can remove three completely different ones and so I'm like, I'm going to take out 30. I'm going to put in 30. Yep. And again, the randomness of saying you would intentionally build the blocks doesn't really make any sense because they could all end up together anyway. Exactly. Like it's just, so the only thing we will do, and it's less relevant with the vertical, but with other, it's, it's helpful to organize them by age. Okay. But then same thing with the rye. <laughs> the ones that were younger showed as the most volatile. But then you couldn't make a good blend without the younger barrels. So I think in the end, that's where I just think of it like cooking. Mm -hmm. I mean, in the end, if you know what good food is and you're sitting there, I mean, you can say you have your approach, but then you're just like, it needs more pepper. Right. Exactly. Right. It's like exactly. you just keep going until yeah. you're like, did you oversalt this, it? This potato yeah. salad tastes great. Right. You know, and it, by the time you get to the end of it, it's just kind of like, yeah, I'm going to throw in a little more mustard, you know, and you just keep going. <laughs> Until you're like, that yeah. tastes awesome. Yeah, definitely. Has but, has there ever been a situation where you did a blend where you said, okay, the, this is what we're going to go with. It's great. Love it. And then it got blended and you were like, oh shit, it doesn't taste like I thought it was going to. That's a good question. I've mostly found, and it's actually a great question as well, because there are a lot of variables like we're blending one to one right? But you don't know the fill levels aren't identical, right? Yep. So when you go to dump, you know, you know that what you created a guideline, but you know that it's not like identical. The other variable for anyone, for any nerds out there, which is fascinating. <laughs> it's a few of them. Is That's everyone that listens you, to this podcast. You pull, like, this is for you. <laughs> when you pull your samples, they always pull from the bottom of the barrel. They drill a hole in the bottom of the barrel. Otherwise, like it won't flow out as nicely, right? So they drill from the bottom. If you have to imagine the inside of a barrel, it's evaporating from the top. So until the barrel gets dumped, there's no, you can't get the aggregate proof, right? Yes. Yep. Yep. So you're getting, your samples are higher proof than the actual barrel will be when it's dumped. Yep. So when I blended the five-year vertical rye, which we proofed at 103, we were proofing it to 103 based on what we call like a composite blend because mm. it's a blend from samples, 
that was 120 proof. Mm. Wow. When it was dumped, cask strength was 111. Really? really? Yeah. Wow. So that's nine a, points. That's a big difference. But what I will say that was interesting is, I think you would say that's weird if you're blending it at 120 yeah. and you proof to 103. Isn't that different than blending at 111 and proofing to 103 in terms of like what you're experiencing? Yep. But I will say that the end result was really spot on. Well, that's a and great I'm not saying point. it was identical. Yeah. I'm just saying it was a really good result. Hmm. So mostly, um, I feel Ooh. like if anything, it goes the other way where I'll think of it as better than I remember it. Mm-hmm. Okay. And maybe that's because you're, I mean, I think the samples are pretty representative, but by the same token, you're not getting the whole barrel. Right. And so there's something better about the final result. Yeah when you dump the whole barrel and or all the barrels together. I think that just speaks to this being like, it's not an exact science. Like there's no possible way of ever really knowing exactly how it's going, going to be. You can just go off of, you know, what you think is the best from those samples. And then it's most likely going to turn out well. I so. think so. Yeah, I mean, I think that in general, when it comes to the the pre blending that we do from samples, it's a very good way of achieving a high quality result. Yeah. Even if, and again, to be honest, I don't even bother going back and be like, oh, let me taste my composite blend. I'm just always super curious. The bottle shows up, and yep. I'm like, yeah. let's dig in. And I, like the um, our high proof bourbon heist that just came out that one was is better than i remember it where i was like and then i'm surprised it's actually kind of more fun like somewhere in my head i think i have a sense of how it tasted but i came back to that one and i was like oh wow and it has this very i'm sure you guys have gotten this it it's become one of my favorite notes in bourbon in general is this sort of to me it's almost it doesn't sound great unless you like them but it's kind of like a twizzler Oh yeah, mm. like it's a candy cherry note. Yeah, I think it's Talking the most two candy guys. Right yeah, here. yeah. it's a pretty whiskey. unexpected note. Um, I feel like the Four Roses Small Batch Select mm. has a lot of it, and I and it there's a note that shows up in the High Proof Bourbon Heist that actually reminds me of that Four Roses. And the, mm, you nice. know, I mean, those distilleries couldn't be like you know further apart in every way, shape, or yeah. form. Um, so it was super unexpected and cool. And I'm excited too. We have the, um, so this Benny's, um, this Benny's blend, I'm super excited about because it really represents everything we were just talking yeah. about, which is instead of 180 barrels, what if you're, you have 180 barrels and you're blending 150? Uh-huh. What if you have six barrels and you're only blending three of them? And you have the ability, so there, if you're blending three out of six, yeah. you have 20 possible combinations. And I, in a non-obnoxious way, I, what I've been saying about this is like, I think this is the future, not like the future of bourbon, but I think like a, a more appealing and interesting notion of what a single barrel is is instead of just saying, okay, here are four barrels. Choose one. Choose one. I think that's, I think anyone who blends would tell you that they would take a blend over a single barrel any day of the week. If it was a carefully created blend, not a homogenous thousand barrel dump into uh, a tank. Um, And because 
you've got six barrels. Obviously, if you're doing three-barrel blend, each one represents 33%. Each barrel is going to have a huge impact on the... Uh, will have a huge impact. Yeah. Right? yeah. So if you're sitting there and you're just kind of like... And when I was doing them, if you taste through six single barrels and you're just like, that's different from the blending I was talking about with the blocks. If you have one barrel that's super hot, you just don't even want to mess with it. Okay. Like then it won't work. Like then at, at being a third of the blend, mm-hmm. you're not going to get a good result. How, how did you do this one with Binnie's? Did they choose the bo- the barrels? They or? Cho- so the way this was supposed to be done was in person. Right. And I couldn't figure out a way logistically with COVID to do it in person. Because what I wanted to do is to just say like, all right, let's sit down. Here are the six single barrels. Mm-hmm. It's really your, like I'm here to like, you can bounce ideas off me or like give me your impressions. Right. Um, but this is your blend. Like you have six barrels, you have 20 possibilities. I think what's cool about it too, especially for a larger store, I think this yielded 110 six packs. Oh, whereas a normally, obviously you would get like 35, six packs. Right. Right. Um, so for a bigger store, it works that they can have something that instead of saying like, Oh, we'll pick three different single barrels. And so it has this, we're calling this true small batch because, which is again, not trying to be arrogant, but since small batch has no, <laughs> like, right. legal, no, yeah, like yeah. no definition, I think to me, like I could call, I feel confident calling a three barrel blend, a right. true, like an actual small batch. Or right. A You're true, like true wait, small batch. So four roses is a small batch too. And, <laughs> yeah, so exactly. is, and so is the distillery down the street on the block that has like a thousand liter still on there. Okay. It is really interesting to see because obviously with Benny's too, they can ship it between thirty to forty stores and disperse yes. it really well. So, yeah, so I think they it's ambitious but doable for them. This went to forty five stores, and when I checked in with Brett, who's the buyer, he mm-hmm. was really happy with it. He said they sold half of it in the first week. I bet Chris had something to do with that, maybe. <laughs> so well, this is this is also the first four-year-old that's come out of castle and key I was just gonna say so these are all four-year-old barrels they're not much older than four or they're just four but it right. is it's four-year-old cask strength unfiltered um and uh oh so sorry so the way i ended up doing it was i had to pre-select okay i i sent everyone four blends so instead of getting four single barrels to pick from they were picking from four different three barrel blends oh, nice. okay obviously they all had overlap yeah um, and honestly, to me too, like I was just trying to give cool options, but if three of the four had two of the same barrels and then, <laughs> but then just swapped out the third, like I, my goal wasn't to, um, use as many possible combos. Like if there were two barrels of the six that were just really special and they were going to anchor it, then I was just trying to give people four distinct blends. Could so, clubs do this on a smaller level? I mean, I think that like... I don't know how you could go smaller than this. Although we did one of these with Reddit. Okay. So our bourbon is doing one of these because, I mean, whatever, they have 170-something thousand members. So I think you just have to be at a scale where enough there'd be enough interest from the club. Yeah. Um, But I think this is, I mean, hopefully next year this will be really fun um, because it's really – I would prefer to only do them in person and let people have the actual experience and say of sitting there with their yeah, pet right. and saying like, okay, first you, and I think the the fun thing about it and um, 
with uh, Reddit. It was the one we did in person mm. with Reddit and also Sealbox. They were partnering on it. Um, we did that one in Kentucky. And yeah, the fun part is to like, you go through all six single barrels <laughs> yeah. and you'd get your impressions of them. And then everybody had their chance to say, based on their own palettes, to yeah. say, all right, well, let's... The, these are the two blends I thought that were the best. And then there are five other people. And then you're like, well, what blend did you do? Yeah. And then you see how much overlap there is. And then, you know, try to winnow it down as a group to the two or three you think are the best. Right. Try to narrow it down to two. Maybe retaste those two blind. Mm -hmm. And like, I, I don't know. I think it's more of a, um, I think you get a better product. Yeah, you, we've but, talked about this. Like you have this has kind of been, I feel like your idea for a while of like, this is kind of the future of doing the single barrel, but in a more interesting way. Mm -hmm. And I have to tell you this, these three barrels in this one, this is, this is really good. This is, yeah. I'm really happy with that. It's, oh man. Oh. This turned out really well. Kind of, um, I feel like it's kind of savory. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. It's almost, I get like a cotton candy kind of sweetness to it right up front mm -hmm. with, the, with the caramel notes inside of there too. But um, I don't know if it's psychosomatic, but I also get licorice towards the end. Mm -hmm. Really, really nice. Yeah, I, mean, I think that is the savory is a liquor. <laughs> Excuse me. 115 proof got me. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, um, same thing on the first one. Like, <clears> oh, <throat> yeah. Um, yeah, the first cast strength whiskey of the day will always get you. Um, yeah, my third actually already <laughs> was at Delilah's earlier. Oh, yeah. So yeah, um, I agree with you. It is definitely has that kind of licorice savory note, but is super sweet up front. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I'm really happy. With that. When you were buying your first barrels, yeah, what was the thought about? Okay, I'm sourcing whiskey, mm -hmm. but how do I make this my own? I always get an. I always. It's been. It's very interesting right now with certain brands that are buying whiskey, putting their label on it, but not really doing anything anything unique with it, other yeah. than purchasing it from another distillery. And it, we were. We always talk about transparency and how we want to know where it's coming from, sure. where it's aged. But what are you doing differently to make it your own, make it unique? Obviously, you're doing it now, but what's yeah. their initial intent? Yeah. So right from the beginning. So you. I. I mean. I. I tell the story a lot, but I, I always ask people to like go back to 2008. Yeah. I own what is maybe the only whiskey bar, American whiskey bar in America. Mm -hmm. That's not in Kentucky. And even at the time in Kentucky, there may be like three places, right. even that, like they're just so used to like it's Kentucky. And of course we have bourbon that there were very, there was a place called bourbon's bistro. That's still there that has like a real wall of bourbon. Um, proof on Maine mm -hmm. was already mm -hmm. there. Uh, and then maybe the other place I can think of was, um, I don't remember the year they opened, but is Bluegrass Tavern in Lexington. Okay. And there was one of those ones where you're like, oh shit, they have 25 different blends. Right. Like, wow, that's but crazy. I, you could still say, I'm, yeah, I like bourbon and then people put Jack Daniels in front of you too. Correct. That's some of those bars. Yeah. And also, I mean, I think the big thing that's changed is you can go into even an Italian restaurant now mm. and they might have like 30 American whiskeys. <laughs> like true. it really used to be that even if you went into like an American uh, restaurant or a steakhouse yeah. that they would still have like, I don't know, Woodford, Jack, Beam, you know, and maybe they had like one of the Beam small batch, like yep. they'd have Baker's or something like that. I was that. in a wine bar the other yeah. day and they had a pin hook old fashioned on their menu. Oh, really? In New York. Yeah. That's in, awesome. In Brooklyn. I was like, 
you, you really use Pinhook here? Like, we were totally caught off guard. That's like, amazing. We'll take, Leave it to we'll, those Brooklynites. We'll take two too. of those. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Sure, is the only person actually ordering whiskey in the whole entire bar, but... <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so my bourbon bar, the only thing you could see was American whiskey. So we had vodka, gin, rum, tequila in the well. And the cocktails on the menu were only bourbon cocktails or mm-hmm. American whiskey cocktails. We had scotch and irish canadian japanese etc but it was all in drawers right so the only thing you could see was american whiskey and you have to understand it's a restaurant and i was started and i had no manager so i spent you know many many hours as one does and just looking at this wall which at the time because you could get as much btac or pappy or whatever as you wanted was truly a pretty comprehensive representation of you know I mean, there were obviously things in Kentucky, like all those other labels of Heaven Hill that yeah. didn't leave Kentucky. But generally speaking, it was like, this is American whiskey. Like, this is the entire world of it in, right in front yeah. of you. Um, and I, know. and no one was doing single barrel picks. No one was really doing finishes. I don't know. We had like this collector's thing of like a beam port finish that was like gift shop only. But like generally speaking, there was no... There were no craft distilleries right. to speak of. Craft was an idea. We had Hudson Maybe. Baby Bourbon. Falcones wasn't out yet. Um, you know, High West and Whistlepig had just started. Yep. I guess Jefferson's was actually pretty early on. Like they were like yep. 1997. Um, True. We had St. George. Uh, Stranahan's was around. But that's like, that's it. Yeah. It's it, yeah. So there's really no variety. Um Sorry, this is a long answer to your question. But so the single thing that had already occurred to me, which is still the central aspect that makes us different, was I I trained as a sommelier. And I just didn't, I thought, my thought, having tasted all the stuff, I was like, God, the laws of bourbon are so narrow Mm -hmm. with the X percent corn and new charred oak barrels, blah, 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 all the stuff we know. I was like, it really makes everything more similar than dissimilar. Yeah. Even it doesn't matter what these people say about their mash bills and their yeasts and this, that, and the other. It's like at the end of the day, like the laws make it very, very narrow. And so my thought was there's got to there's there's got to be an opportunity to take a different approach hmm. and bring a different perspective. And because the in wine, everything is about vintage, at least good wine. And so that was just the thing that occurred to me. I was like, why can't you make... Why does it have to be about this homogenous flavor profile? Yep. And so that really was it. Like that, and that was before we figured out the name, mm-hmm. connecting it to thoroughbred horse racing, like all the other stuff. And I still think to me, it's, you know, and in spite of all the other brands that have come around, and there's some great examples of it. It, unless and you guys should honestly check me because I'd have to think of like, am I not thinking of someone? I still think of us as the only ones. Like Barrel has all these tiny releases, right, right, right. and it's all cast strength. And this, but when it comes to something like you know, we've got our flagship bourbon here, Orange Wax. Yep. The idea that our everyday bourbon that we produce an annual vintage of it, and that, and the horses of course are real and actively racing. But to me, the horses are also most importantly a metaphor for the idea mm-hmm. that it's like every year there's a new silk pattern on the label. Right. There's a new um, there's a new horse on the label. And there's at least in my mind, a distinctly different whiskey in the bottle. 
And that's, again, that's not about some one-off blend or I think of like, you know, stag is of course, that's like an annual vintage and the yeah. proofs vary, but I, at least in my mind, I see that as incidental. Like, it's just like whatever proof they have the barrels that are earmarked for stag. And sometimes it's 142 and yep. sometimes it's 129 and sometimes it's 119, but they're not right. trying to shape the idea of like, this was our harvest for the year and here's the the vintage. So I don't know. I, in my mind, unless I'm missing, and like I said, by all means, tell me, unless I'm missing it, I can't think of another, I can't think of another bourbon brand who's basically saying we're taking a winemaking approach to whiskey where we're looking at each year, like across mm-hmm. our expressions as the opportunity to create the best expression that we can from our mature barrels. Yeah. And doing it, like you said, um, earlier today when we were, when we were out doing it unfiltered, Mm. um, and and just putting it out basically as it is. Yes. The, your, your standard expression, you've proofed it to a, a proof that you think it's, it's the best at, but who's putting out, you know, 98 to 103 proof, unfiltered whiskey as their flagship whiskey. I mean, nobody, I mean, no one's changing proof points. No one's doing it unfiltered and saying, this is our flagship product. I don't know of anyone, any one doing that. Like maybe there's some other craft distilleries out there that are are really small that, you know, we don't know about that, that are putting it out that way. But, and I also think it's not, I mean, Anyone can take anyone else's idea. Yeah. But I think what's fun is like, and I'm not, I mean, I'm trying to think of like the guy from, I forget his name, but like from St. Cloud, Mm. he was a wine, he was in the wine business. So I'm definitely not the only person. I think the Starlight guys obviously have like a wine background. Right. But I think I'm the only person that I can think of who had like this specific thing. It's like, I was a sommelier and then I owned a bourbon bar. I think in the end, everyone's going to bring their own kind of DNA to what they do. Yeah. Um, and so because of that, it's like, and again, I never, I would say this to anyone all the time. No one. And this goes back to our conversation about suppliers being delusional. Like, I'm not going to say, Oh, and therefore Pinhook is the best and no one can make a whiskey right. as good as Pinhook. That's not the point. The point is more just that like, and also not to leave my co-founders out of it, but like, you know, one of my founders, Charles Fulford, um, he does all of our packaging design. He's a creative director. Right. One of my other founders, I mean, he was more our business person, but he was the one whose roommate, Jamie Hill, who's the owner of Bourbon Lane Stable, pinhooks for a living and had spent time in Kentucky. So it was also the collective DNA of three friends who bought 20 barrels of bourbon in 2011 when it was really cheap. You know, we paid... $465 a barrel for a three-year-old MGP. Whenever you, I hear you say that, yeah. st- I don't believe it. You're yeah. like, oh my gosh. I could show you the invoice. Yeah. Um, but that the three of us yeah. and the fact that like, and you know, it's the one where I think until people hear the story, they're like, oh, I get it. Bourbon and horses. Like, of course, like the two things Kentucky's <laughs> most famous for, but it was not, the vintage thing was the initial idea, how the vintage thing was going to be expressed, you know, through the packaging mm-hmm. and all that. It truly came organically because of our friendship with Jamie, because we spent three years hanging out in Kentucky regularly and having time to absorb. And I think that was honestly, when I really look back, that was our goal. You know, and I, I sometimes I hate saying this cause it's like such a cliche, but it was, we were like three guys who were married 
and we're like, we're, we have a bourbon business. Like, we <laughs> got to go to us, Chris. Like, we got to go to Kentucky to check on the barrels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and I think that because it seemed kind of cool, I think you know. Um, again, I don't want to traffic in cliches, but I think our wives were like, oh, that's cool. Like, and and they they were supportive of the idea. It's like, no, we have to go. Yeah, check in on the barrels and see what's yeah. going on. But we really did in that like spend a lot of time going to other distilleries and mm. meeting people in the industry and spending time with Jamie. And we're just like, well, what are we doing? Well, I don't know. Well, there's a horse sale at Keeneland. Like, do you guys want to tag around and tag along with us? And then we're just like watching a horse sale, like drinking a beer. And you're just like out there in it, yeah. absorbing it. And I think that, you know, again, even though you'd say, oh, bourbon and horses, it's so obvious. I don't think anyone else could create this because it was just an unusual mix of people with complementary skills and backgrounds yeah. who spent a lot of time. And I honestly think the big advantage that we had was a complete lack of a sense that we were in a hurry mm. because as much as I feel like we've been ahead of the curve a little bit, it's not like we had this sense like, oh my God, the bourbon bourbon is about to just blow up like yeah. this is going to be bonkers like we have to be first to market and we got have to create this brand and we need to build it to this scale so someone will buy us like we were just really like we want to do something cool we were taking our time and we spent a long time just like soaking it all in mm -hmm. and i think and i won't mention any specific names and honestly no one comes to mind but i'm sure you guys can think of who they are there's so much stuff that's just being churned out mm -hmm. and you can just feel that someone was just like i don't know tried to like flip through a history book or like they were just looking for like a a, a hook no yep. pun intended they were just like trying to find the thing yeah and i don't blame i mean that's i don't blame them for it but i think there's nothing that beats you know time yeah and like and authenticity authenticity yeah, yeah and i think that's what our i mean even like the drawings of the horses like jamie would like reject like a picture because it's like no everyone knows that if a horse's ears are pointed in that direction like that's not a good and we're like i don't know yeah but everyone knows. but but it's it is authentic for the fact that we touched everything and that we never hired anybody to do anything yeah, right i right. mean obviously now we like contract to still yeah we never hired a, a marketing company we didn't hire a design company like we literally did it all ourselves yeah and so i think there is a hands-on kind of feel that oh, do you think there's a day when you're gonna let that go and i mean trust others out from outside the group i don't think so because good i mean but i just mean in the sense that like like now we have a bigger team but like yeah. charles is the creative director mm -hmm. i mean that's this is not his full-time job but like anything that has to do with the look and feel of penhook is still his domain um i don't it's not like i imagine like other people um you know assist me and like sit in on the blending but like i don't know why would i it's not that's not something that i would ever outsource and be yeah. like okay you get the vibe like you do it now well like, could you ever imagine a situation where <clears throat> let's say you know next three to five years or whatever it may be like pinhook is it's grow it's a growing brand and you get to the point where like there's so much demand for the product that you will put out say a 90 proof flagship product and then still do like 
you know, your bourbon heist, like this right now is your flagship product. You mm. blended it. You decided like 98 proof is where it's at. It's unfiltered. Do you see a situation arising where you maybe add something that comes before something like That's bourbon heist? That's a really heist? good question. That's an awesome question. I mean, I, I think that like, to, I mean, it's it really is a good question because I think that if someone was to look at it from the outside, they would say, well, that's your one impediment, right? Is that like even today when we were at Leo's, right? I was, I had to explain to him like, well, this is bourbon heist. It's the orange wax, but you still have bohemian bourbon, which is the prior vintage. They're very different, but I can't make an argument that you should have two faces, right? Or like you should have something that's like, they're different, but they're the same. Yep. So what you should be doing is waiting, like hopefully, you know, whatever he had five bottles of Bohemian left on the shelf. Hopefully you'll, you know, in a month or whatever, he'll sell through them or get down to two bottles. And then you should order the heist and put it behind it. Mm -hmm. And then then it becomes the next thing. And it just keeps rolling. Yep. Um, But yeah, would it be easier if there was like a generic pinhook bourbon that did have a consistent flavor profile? And same with the rye. Mm-hmm. And it was somehow like, I don't think you could put a horse on it because that would be inauthentic. But yeah, more maybe like your logo or a something. logo right? <laughs> or just something that would kind of like, and it was a lower price point. Um, something like, you know, something like that. Um, I mean, it's a good question because like we were, I guess, ostensibly to what I was saying before, like, the whole concept was not doing that. Yeah. Um, but then I always like to tell people, and I would say the same thing with my restaurants. Like there's a lot of passion and energy that was put into them, but I would always end up, it's like, it's not an art project. Right. You know, yeah. and you don't want to be an impediment. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, even now, the one thing that we changed, which has nothing to do, like it's, it's purely logistics, but we put, we keep the UPC the same. Hmm. Because that means for grocery stores and like bigger chains, that's a hurdle. Like they're not going to take it if you change the UPC. Yeah, because they have to. It's a yeah. They have to keep changing things on their end. They just won't do it. Yeah, they're They're not going to say. So they're fine with the vintage model. Yeah, they just want when the new vintage rolls in. As long as you don't change the price and the UPC is the same, we can keep rolling. So, and again. That's a modification that yeah. there's no sacrifice. I mean, it's a UPC yeah, code. Yeah, like, who exactly. cares? But, you know, I think you do start to realize, you know, we're in 27 states and we're still obviously a mm-hmm. small brand. But at some point, you know, if your goal is, I mean, my goal, which has nothing to do with case volume or anything like that, is. It is also really fun to try to build a brand to go from, yeah. and you, I mean, you guys are around this, to go from being something that no one's ever heard of to get to the point where you're in 27 states. You're in 27 yeah. states, and yeah. people, you know, I think Willet is a great example because, like, way more people have heard of Willet than have heard of Pinhook, but Willet is obviously not Jim Beam. Like, I still think you have to like bourbon to have heard of Willet. Yeah. Whereas I think you could not even drink bourbon or care about bourbon and have heard of Jim Beam, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, the idea of... I mean, that's the other part to me that has nothing to do 
with the way it tastes. And like I said, it's not even a taste competition Mm -hmm. is to just like, yeah, I'm fascinated by that idea because actually for that very same reason, because there's so much parody when it comes to, especially for like the everyday product, like I'm not going to have that argument with someone that's like, what do you like better Pinhook or Jim Beam or Heaven Hill Black Label? Or it's not like, that's not a conversation um, that you even want to have. But the interesting conversation is like, how could you get to the point where anyone who has a remote interest in bourbon and then people who even don't have heard of you? Yeah, they know the name. And unintentionally, you've made buyers do some homework too in a very good way about taste. If you have batches from batch to batch, from year to year, tasting and also trying to try to discover, is this the same whiskey is it different the name's different the horse is different but the color is the same but right. the shapes might be different and unintentionally yes. you've built whiskey drinkers that now are more educated and also looking to find out more about the brand i mean that's where i go with you guys yeah. it was something that was always I'm like okay it's the same color but different name the horse looks a little bit different now these yellow balls are all out here and chris keeps talking about those right. ones so single barrels are now existent and then i walked into bottles and cans yeah, and they had like wide, thicker bottles and shorter bottles of your whiskey with uh, like a maroon wax around it. Okay, and I'm like, well, where did these come from? And I can't remember what they've even said about them, but there's something always in discovery about your brand. It gets back to the very first minute of the conversation about how you're always toying around with just the the blending process in general. Well, and it's I think to your point, what I'm fat. So one thing that we were really focused on was through the bar i was seeing that collecting was starting to become a thing yeah yeah but what i was realizing is like there's nothing fun about the collecting because huh. like if you're collect think about it like now originally before pappy blew up no one even knew that it was an annual release <laughs> like you just thought that it was a running product because it wasn't a big deal and then it was like pappy comes out in the fall blah, right blah, blah, right then people started to actually talk about that they were vintages, even though Pappy doesn't do a single thing to distinguish a vintage. Nope. But I realized, well, there are people chasing serial numbers. Yeah. Right. So they would know they would like, and then you'd see these bourbon bars where they had eight different vintages of lot B or whatever. Mm -hmm. And they had to put tags on them Yeah. on the back. They had to stick something on the back so that they could say like, Oh, this is the 2017 and this is the 2014, whatever it was. Right. Then I was looking at something like, a stag mm-hmm. or the other BTAC stuff where the only distinguishing feature is like they do write the vintage. Yep. Right. But it's not written that big. And so same thing. If you see six bottles of stag, it just looks like six bottles of stag. Yep. So that was very intentional. Like we knew we wanted to do the vintage thing, okay. but also making it fun to have the different vintages because yeah. you could, by color, you can identify which expression it is. But then if you ended up collecting, like let's say your favorite was the high proof bourbon. So you could have four different magenta wax bottles, but all of them would have a different shape, okay. have a different date mm-hmm. and have a different horse. Yeah. And that that would make it fun. Yeah. And I Super honestly fun. think like if you look at the bourbon community or the whiskey community, I actually think that the most underlying thing is that it is fun 
Yeah. But then when I think about the industry itself, there's nothing particularly fun about it. <laughs> like if you think about the packaging yeah. or any of it. Sales calls. Sales calls. <laughs> well, yeah, that's a that's, that's whole other thing. But yeah, there's nothing like playful about it. Mm. And so I think that that's another thing that we were trying to get to is like, yeah, well, collecting different bottles should be fun. Yeah. Um, and, and I think, and I think going back to your other question, the part that's both is interesting to me too, is like one-offs have become the single most popular thing in bourbon. Yeah. And so in a way, on the one hand, we've created this challenge for ourselves. Like there's definitely, people are getting to know it better, but there's a little bit of confusion around like, wait a minute, I didn't, they can't, it takes people a while to figure out that the color for an expression always stays the same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they're just like, I don't know, there are all these different colors. And they're like, I, like now there's a teal one. Well, the teal one's rye. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, but is that always that one? You know, no, yeah. teal is always high proof. Like in the end, you're asking people, which I had this conversation with someone the other day who was, I wasn't, I didn't, I don't think I was being defensive, but they were like, Pinhook's confusing. And I was kind of like, is it though? Because it's color coded. I was like, if you ask someone who cares about bourbon to break down Buffalo Trace, right. there are only two SKUs at Buffalo Trace actually called Buffalo Trace. The distillery is called Buffalo Trace and they have one bourbon <laughs> and then Buffalo Cream. That's and true. then every so single good. other skew, and that person will sit there and be like, "Well, there's seven different Wellers, and there's CYPB, and the H this Taylor, is the yeah, and there's, there's the early Taylor, times. And, the, yeah. and they can break it all down." And I'm like, "That's confusing. We only have all of our yeah. products are called Penhook, and they're color coded." Um, but so I think it's more a function of us being new, mm-hmm. yeah, or, or yeah. newer, um, and that people will get it. But what I was going to say though is, I guess even though we've created a little bit of a, a problem with saying like. Oh well, wh- oh mm-hmm. well. What is different about the orange one? By the same token, the industry right now is really being driven by something new. Mm-hmm. And if you include our single barrels, we have eight total expressions. So every year we have eight new vintages of eight different things, which is eight opportunities to talk about something new. I love that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know. Well, and it's playful. Like the colors are playful. When you see them on a shelf, Leo's is one of them in particular because they have them all lined up instead yep. of like at Benny's. You <clears> have yes. the rise over here. You have the yes. bourbons over there. They even are on different shelves sometimes. Yes. On the store. I'm like, yes. It's like I think Moreno's and Leo's are the only two stores in Chicago. Put them together. Where yeah. you can actually. And see I think them. that's. I mean, in like you know, you can't tell a store what to do. But that's certainly it always draws my curiosity. But that's always my thing, and I'm like, trust me, I under, I'm not trying to tell you how to lay out your store. Yeah. But when you put two, three, four of these in a row, it grabs as a people's attention. Right. And it, it's and like you, Christmas lights, and you understand the story more yep. too, right? Oh, it's yeah. like you see the different horses and you see the shapes, and it helps you understand what's going on. But I, I mean, the other thing I like about it too is like, unlike other brands, sometimes if you show someone the product, and they're like, no, we already had that. Yeah. It was fine. They're like. Well, it's the new vintage. Oh, excuse me. You know, yeah. so I have something new to show you. Yeah. yeah. You already showed me Pinhook Orange Label. I did, but I showed you last year's vintage and this year this the, the barrels are blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Like there's some reason for, and as you know, calling on people and as you do on the supply side, like there's an actual rationale Yeah. to say like, I have something new to show you. Yeah, there is. Yeah. And I think going back to even the playfulness that you're talking about, how it's it can be very stale um, in the whiskey world for most concepts, except for the customer either going out and buying and finding something you want or actually visiting the distillery. I wanted to ask this, you know, I don't know how long ago, 
that would you ever do the whole blending process either with Binnie's as an actual experience for customers in person? Yeah. And I, you know, when I've tried to think about that, it's, it's just a pure logistics thing, right? It's like how many people are doing it? How many, how much volume? I mean, unfortunately they're all like the dumb laws of like, but how much can you actually pull right, right, from right. a barrel as a sample? And like, would you need to pull two liters of six different barrels? Would yeah. the distillery let you remove two liters as samples mm. from the distillery? And then how many people could you put in a room, each with their own set of six right. and their own pipette? Yeah. And then just, and then like organize everyone to say, like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> which ones did you have and then like put it all on a yeah, chart yeah. and be like okay let's try to figure out because there are 20 <laughs> possible combos like mm -hmm. how many of the different combos did we hit how does everyone taste each other's <clears throat> if there are too many of them yeah so to answer your question yes i've thought about it and i haven't thought of like how you would i how many people could do right. it i mean when we did it and in, in kentucky i guess it was six people and it seemed fine yeah uh -huh. Yeah. But it would be fun, like to your point, I think it would be fun to do it with 40 people. I just don't know if in the end you might not be able to let them all have a say. Well, right, right. that everyone couldn't taste. <laughs> yeah. Right. And I've, yeah, you'd I almost like have to have the panel who would say, like, all right, well, yeah. someone's got to taste the combos. And hopefully some of the people would end up being represented because there are only so many options. But it yeah. would be really fun. It would yeah. be. I've done it before at oh, you have. a distillery, and they were. I was on the pilot program of theirs just by coincidence. That was our friend's distillery, Jay Henry, up in Wisconsin. Oh, they're great. Oh, I yeah. love that whiskey. Great people too. Um, and there was a local whiskey group doing a private tour. We happened to be in the area, so we jumped aboard. Um, and they did that for the very first time, a whole blending operation. I think each little table of six, seven, eight people got four balls to play around with. Yeah. And it, it was great. It was playful to get back to that word. Um, and it was fun for everybody to actually sit there with whiskey and feel part of the industry yeah. when they're part of a, just a whiskey group themselves, but they're yeah. all bourbon fiends. Um, uh, they had never really heard of scotch or anything outside of that. <laughs> yeah, they kept saying, thinking uh, that our Australian whiskey was scotch and that was Scottish because Callum was there too. And he's speaking in a Scottish <laughs> accent, so he must be Scottish too. And they're like, we'll get away from that. But um it was hard to pull and everybody just try the samples when you were 30 people um, to taste them, talk about well, why did you choose that bottle, the bottle with this bottle. Yes. Yeah. So there's a lot of that. I mean, it's fun, but then I guess how much of at the end of the day are you getting out of it? Unless you're just teaching a class where someone's paying you $150 to learn how to blend for a couple hours. I did. That reminds me of, I was in, when I was in Kentucky, we were doing single barrel identification. So just so we had twenty four single barrels to get through. Mm. The way that I do it is I grade them, like really like a teacher, and I'm just like this is an A minus, this is a B plus, this is a B, this is a C minus, whatever. And then, you know, so then we can figure out which ones yeah. to flow into the program. Anyway, there's some there was someone there from a local group, and then someone else who was just a friend who wanted to like jump in. Well, we release our single barrels at cast strength. Yep. And so obviously we taste them at cast strength. And so I just, at, you know, we were staying at Jamie's and we asked them if they wanted to join. And they're like, oh, sure. And 
one guy quit after nine. <laughs> yeah. And we were spitting, keep in mind, right? Yeah. It wasn't because he was hammered. It's like we were spitting. He was just like started to become yeah. very difficult for him to discern. Mm-hmm. Which I honestly it. think is like, I think I've built it up. I imagine it would be like spicy food. Like I feel like I can get through a lot of single barrel samples and still I would admit that it's affecting me and that the, your palate is starting to, I always find the idea of palate fatigue to be kind of weird. I think it's the opposite. It's like oversaturation. Hmm. Like my palate's not tired. My palate, it's like overwhelmed. It's one eighteen on yeah. top of one twenty on yeah. top of one nineteen, and yeah. all it's just building, building. How are you going to then assess this next one? I found that I've done it enough where I can get the important information, hmm. which is mostly for me. It's like, well, obviously the aroma takes care of itself. That doesn't. That's not problematic. But just like, am I getting heat on the palate? I find even with the building, I can still distinguish, like a hot barrel from a not hot barrel length of finish and just overall complexity. One of the other guys insisted on finishing, but he was just like, I don't know how far we got. Oh my, my mouth is on fire. Like I'm, (laughs) my mouth is burning. Um, so I think, I don't know, to your point about the blending, I think it's like, it can be a challenge. Like you could say, well, wouldn't that be a cool experience? Yeah. But then if the experience is just like, that was crazy. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. I don't even know. I can't, like I got lost and like one guy, like it was, it was nice in a way, but he like just gave everything an A. Yeah. <laughs> these he's all like, taste these great. All great. They're <laughs> and, all great. Yeah. And the funny thing is they weren't, um, I mean, that's the other thing. Like I said, if you've tasted thousands of samples, you know, there's a, there's a, like a Rolodex in your head or like a frame of reference, a grid of quality and yeah. you kind of know what it can be. Yeah. And I think in, probable fairness there was nothing terrible there yeah we were tasting six-year-old mgp bourbon that had been aging in kentucky for yeah, five it's years. not gonna be bad like, there's right. nothing right. horrific yeah. right, right, right you know and like a c doesn't mean like oh this is disgusting it's just yeah. a barrel that maybe is like the palate is a little hollow or the finish is a bit short or yep. you're getting that little burst of ethyl alcohol in the nose and it's yeah. just got some things that make it not great yeah um pretty good whiskey Mm -hmm, for sure you know i wanted to ask you one other thing before we wrap up yeah so there's a lot of you know trends going on in the the whiskey world right now and in bourbon what are your thoughts on all of the um finishes that are that are going on you know wine finishes you're saying maple syrup is a huge one right now honey is a huge one like what are what's pinhook's position on these toasted barrel all these all these things i think that the i mean it's interesting like i've tasted stuff that's really good Hmm. but it's almost like i don't know like i'm trying to think about a good way of thinking about this if you're thinking let's say like you take the grape riesling right Mm -hmm. there are different expressions of it you know you can get it as a dry style Mm -hmm. or you can have your Trockenbaren Auschlese which is a botrytis dessert wine and there are aspects of it that are still Riesling but they're two totally different animals Mm. right and I think that like the finishes to me are just more like a version of a cocktail Mm. most a lot of them are right yeah so you know you could buy a whiskey finished in a cognac barrel or finished in a port barrel, but you could also just like make a cocktail that would have the similar things. Like I like making a 
Um, and I mean, the one thing I don't like about them, I don't know how they're doing it. Some of them have a lot of residual sugar and it mm-hmm. makes me question how they're doing it. Like you're not supposed to add anything. And I, I don't know, I've never played around with it. So I don't know how much natural sugar, uh, you know, if you move, if you transfer aged bourbon into a cognac barrel, like how much sweetness it can actually pull out of it, but they taste really, really sweet. Um, and I don't think, I mean, for me, like, I don't, that's not really what I'm looking for. Or if I wanted to like, I still, I love making an old fashioned cause yeah. I think it's kind yeah. of like the purest expression of a bourbon cocktail. Yeah. And I love using maple syrup. Hmm. Like, I think maple syrup obviously tastes great with bourbon, and you don't need to make simple syrup. Like, it's easy. Uh, it has great viscosity and mouthfeel. Yeah. Um, but if I want that, then I could take my cask-strength bourbon, put in a quarter ounce of maple syrup, play around with two different types of bitters. Maybe if I do a high-proof one, one, I would probably not build it directly in the glass, but build it in a mixing glass and actually stir it, maybe strain it over a big cube. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that product would be like a bourbon or like a maple syrup finished bourbon or like a cognac finished bourbon, but it's like in that vein. Yeah, it's essentially, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's in the ballpark. Yeah, of, uh, it's something like that. Yeah. And I don't, like, I, I guess my feeling is like, if, if I want that, then... I would just make one of those. Do you think it's more commendable to try to finish a whiskey versus just sourcing barrels and putting a label on it? I think so. I mean, you know what someone said to me the other day that made sense? That the purpose of finishing is to restore fruit into an old barrel. Right? Because if you think about the aging process of whiskey, if you taste young whiskey, it tastes more fruity. Mm -hmm. And then over time, it essentially dries out. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. Like you guys have tasted older stuff and it's just like a shift, like all the fruit becomes darker, becomes more like dry fruit. Yep. And then you get more wood. But any of the notion of like freshness is gone. Yeah. And huh. so that maybe the best use of a finish is to take a 13 year old barrel and then that's maybe starting to get a little bit dried out in the flavor of the whiskey. Yeah. And age put it in a cabernet sauvignon barrel and never thought about that way bring it like bring the freshness back like it's almost getting hollowed out but i don't know but why would you take a five-year-old whiskey and then finish it in a port barrel yeah and i feel like that's what's happening no one's finishing 13 year old whiskey in port barrels or Uh, sherry barrels bull run Oh, Bull Run, yeah, yeah I they suppose did. they are. Yeah, yeah, thirteen-year-old yeah, in a cab barrel. So, but, but I would say that's probably rare within more, the yeah. finishing world. Like you're seeing, like people They're, taking young yeah. whiskey and putting it into that's a whole terroir concept yeah. as well, too, by using the local winery from their area. Exactly. To, you know. I mean, I also think, and I'm I'm honestly saying this not to be critical, but just as a perspective, mm. is it how far removed is it from flavored? whiskey like is it really just like you have people in the bourbon community who are like looking at it and being like do you want oh, some jim this... bean vanilla i got some. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. which is a great po- yeah but th- i think that's the thing is like you can you can say you're into whiskey or like you like american whiskey and say like jim beam red stag is gross or, yeah. or, or whatever yeah. like i don't like 
I don't like flavored whiskey or I don't want to drink, you know, uh, whatever honey, you know, but when you get right down to it, isn't is that it, what you're doing? Well, isn't that what you're doing? And aren't you just trying to access mm. the person who doesn't like bourbon hmm. and whose palate wants something sweeter and then just trying to give them that, um, and that that's kind of my yeah. you know but then honestly like barrel makes very sophisticated yeah like and i think that's a different level yeah. like when they're saying like it's this many barrels that were aged in port <laughs> like i commend them for that but i also think to me i'm trying to remember what i tasted of theirs most recently like dovetail yeah dovetail's yeah. great it's great. more scotch like to me it, though, yeah oh yeah right Definitely. because yeah. and scotch has always been great with finishes. Right. But or, part of the reason the scotch finishes are so good is because they're aging in used barrels in the first place. Right. And they're aging in a cooler climate. Cool. Right. Yeah. So different. I don't it's like... It's the entire process right. is being aged it's in like, a used barrel. Yeah. Take a Nabilauer who's aging for 12 years inside of a wine yeah. cask. Yeah. It's completely yeah, different. Yeah. Totally different. Right. Totally or Glenn Farkless, what they're doing with wine maturation. And it's funny how we're opening a whole Pandora's box right yeah. now. But it's, you know, bourbon drinkers... They don't like the concept of scotch because they had a Lafroy 10 cast drink yes. when they were 20 years they old. They think it's all peated right. and yeah. all funky and iodiney. I mean, honestly, I guess when I really think about it, because I it was, I ended up saying a lot of things, but like I don't really like sweet stuff. Yeah, okay, me neither. Period. Like I just don't enjoy yeah. it. So most of what everyone is, if you could, I'm not opposed to the idea of finishes, but however they're doing it is producing a very cloying product. And I don't like cloying things. And Mm. like the one thing my, if I'm on any pedestal about anything, (laughs) it's like, if you're making an old fashioned, you don't need more than a quarter ounce. I've seen you say that. That's my pedestal. A half an ounce is the standard Mm. and it makes it way too much. I think it makes a disgusting drink because it's just cloying. Like if you're, you're going to take two ounces of whiskey and a half an ounce of maple syrup or simple or whatever. It's a lot. It's just really, really sweet. Um, and that's how a lot of the finishes hit me as being really sweet. So is it safe to say that there's really nothing coming down the pipeline from Pinhook that's going to be finished? Or I mean, I would uh, love so to, actually we have. I mean, I would love to. I mean, I'm. I will say this though. I'm. I'm the one thing that has always guided me is being curious. Yeah. So like, I would like to get my own cognac. Bar- like, I'm not sure. Like, yeah, I, right. I'm it's like, yeah, I just want to see what goes on have, for myself. Yeah, you have to keep the options open, obviously, and like if. If you tried it out and it worked, then and if great. it tasted great, yeah. yeah, it just wouldn't be sweet, yeah, like whatever it is. I the one that I always remember, the first one I remember tasting was Angel's Envy. Mm. Was it the rye that they did with the port, port finish? finish? And I'm thinking yeah. back in like 2012, and I was just like, it had that taste of sugar. Mm. It was just so sweet to me, yeah. And I was just kind of like. I'm not really, I don't like it because it's too sweet, but I was also like not really understanding based on scotch that I'd tasted right. finished in port barrels. Because have you ever tasted a scotch? I mean, oh, when yeah. you taste scotch finished in port, it's not like that. And it goes back to Definitely the temperature. Not. It's the barrels. They're, you know, what, what was inside the barrels first coming from our great American product named yeah. bourbon. And yeah. then going over to Scotland, barrel aging in a temperature where the average temperature is 42 degrees. Correct. Versus in Kentucky where the average temperature is probably in the 70s. Yes. And not really dropping below zero at all, where Correct. there it consistently is. You're getting effects from 
depending where you are in the country, all different effects from the sea as well. Yep. Um, it's a completely different process when you kind of compare it to bourbon. You really can't compare the two. It's interesting. And this will be my last digression. There's in, in wine, there's a thing called malolactic fermentation, right? Which yeah. is the second fermentation that happens. And it really helps, you know, bring a level of richness, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it's malic acid, like it's, it's bringing a richness to it and it helps balance this, the sharper acidity mm-hmm. and they do it in Burgundy and they do it in other places in Europe. And then in America, they started using malolactic fermentation because they were mimicking French wine. But the argument is like, because of the climate and the pH in the soil, you don't need to do malolactic yeah. fermentation in the United States. And it ends up producing these cloying, yeah. Sulf- buttery, sulfury, yeah. you know, specifically Chardonnays, but it could be used in other areas. And it, I don't know, it just, the, the analogy that occurred to me is this idea. It's like, I mean, in a lot of ways, like obviously scotch is like the mother ship, right? Like yeah. it all started there. And when it comes to all these finishes, whether it's port or sherry, et cetera, you're really borrowing from Scotland. Mm-hmm. But then to your point, like the climate is so different. Does it really right. make sense in a climate that's as hot as ours? Because it's going to produce and that's already been started in new charred oak barrels, right? right? That's the other thing, like you said. Yeah, they start in a used bourbon barrel. Then they go to a used port barrel in, yeah. in a cooler climate. And did they really, and it, I think it produces some really great products Agreed. in scotch. Yeah. Should we talk about why you're here in Chicago first? <laughs> oh, yeah. and, I mean, not, yeah, at first, but yeah, I know you're on a time crunch too. So um, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I'm on my... What I guess I'm three months into my five month van trip, and uh, honestly, we were, as we were just kind of we've been in California. Um, well, I mean, we kind of worked our started in Louisiana, worked mm. our way through Texas, Arizona, New Mexico, spent a long time in California, and then eventually had to work our way east. Um, I've got to get to New York for pinhook stuff, oh, nice. and so we were just kind of looking at the map and realizing like um, opportunities to be um in places that i haven't been in a while because of covid right great chance to meet chris in person so we've got a fun event tonight (laughs) at the berkshire room um to just meet some local folks and have a good time um and actually i'm going to be in milwaukee tomorrow oh nice yeah so a friend uh friend former chef and partner of my restaurants kyle Knoll, who worked at gramercy tavern and then was my chef in in new york uh and at my restaurant in new orleans is now he ended up deciding to move to Wisconsin. And so he just opened a restaurant called Birch Unpleasant, okay. which was formerly called, I think it was formerly called like Birch and Butcher. And huh. it's been reconcepted. And so, you know, he's doing all the good stuff, you know, local, seasonal. He's super talented. Yeah. Cool. Um, and the restaurant, I think, just opened a couple of weeks ago. Another excuse to go to Wisconsin. Uh, yeah, uh, seriously. So we are, so yeah, I have an event there Sweet. Um, tomorrow evening. Or just one park a van in Chicago. Exactly. So we actually found it was tricky, but we're on what street is the Virgin Hotel on? Uh, Wabash. Yeah. So if you heading away, well, I don't know which direction it would be, but just there are actually a bunch of right off of the L. There are just a bunch of outdoor 
Oh, like pay to park places. Yeah. Oh, where yeah. Where you can like do seventy two <laughs> hours and. When Chris originally sent the message through, I was like, I do a big driveway. We probably do the event. I was like, if I could That would have been nice of you. We were a little concerned. And then we, at first, we were like, I don't know. And then yeah. once you go down Wabash that way, that's weird, but they're just like a bunch huh. of outdoor parking lots there. Huh. That makes sense, I guess. Yeah, there's some down there. But I was, yeah, I was thinking, like, if I could pass it with my HOA, but I only have like four days to do it. <laughs> that would have been so... nice. That was very generous that you even had that thought. So I was like, <laughs> I think we might be able to do it. Because I've been thinking about how could I throw a whiskey festival in this giant parking lot we have in the middle of Lakeview, which doesn't make any sense. But oh well, take it whenever I can get it. As long as my car is outside my door in Chicago, first time ever, like. <laughs> That's okay amazing. sweet I, I will do that but um no i know you're on a time crunch the event starts in like an hour and a half yeah so that's right we gotta get going probably should get you down there uh i appreciate it um obviously we've been big fans of the brand for over a couple of years now so sit here with you in person and not see you on screen somewhere uh it's a, it's a true uh true honor so thank it you is, very much thank you and it's great i mean it's pretty awesome to be uh, obviously meeting folks in person yeah, i'm sure a yeah. lot of people are having this experience now of having built all of these relationships, friendships, connections yeah. via Instagram, Zoom, whatever, over the last year and Absolutely. the change. And now to see people in person is awesome. I think it's going to collide in uh, New Orleans Drink Bourbon Festival. Let's bring I it think on. That's, I, mean, I think we need to make on. that happen. Yeah. So I think, uh, I know Wilson bought his tickets already. Oh, nice. he did? So yeah. When is that? It's in August. When in August, August is it? August 18th through the 22nd. 21st or 22nd. Something, something like that. that. I will be there. I'm trying to be one of the rare non-bourbon brands there. So it's been a long, it's been a long a process, good. but uh, we'll, we'll see. I think either way, there'll be uh, some key in the lake microphones down there. Very cool. awesome. Yeah, definitely. Well, Chris, thank you as well putting this together. Uh, very last minute. So I was like, I'll, oh, just, I'll, I'll just message Chris, you know, maybe by chance you guys have a little bit of time. And I started, I started my work early this morning so we could clear the <laughs> afternoon out. So I appreciate it very much. Um, and we'll have some fun tonight. Absolutely. Awesome. Thank you again. Thank Sean, you. Chris. I think Chris, I think Wilson's calling me right now as, as we're wrapping up the podcast. <laughs> Cheers, guys. Cheers. Cheers.